Hello, welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Now, if you're new to this podcast, we combine two things we love, horror movies and philosophy. We spend about two spoiler-filled hours digging up a movie's flower beds and staring at it with binoculars, which brings us to tonight's film, Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 masterpiece, Rear Window. Jimmy Stewart stars as a war photographer, whose broken leg renders him immobile, and he spends his days staring out the window at his neighbors across the way. When circumstantial evidence leads Stewart's character to believe that one of his neighbors may have killed his wife, uh, the neighbor's wife, that is, he enlists Grace Kelly in his efforts to solve the mystery. Nominated for four Academy Awards and 45th on AFI's list, Rear Windows is one of Alfred Hitchcock's most acclaimed movies, for which he also did not win a Best Director Oscar. It's tense, it's got some good character interaction and relationship drama, but is it a horror film? Now, our co-host Noah always talks about expanding the definition of horror, including the idea that if a film leaves a stone in, the shoe, in your shoe, if it's unsettled you, then it has done the job that horror films should do. And so in that sort of really expanded definition of uh, horror, then this certainly fits that genre. But uh, one of my questions for my co-hosts um, is going to be, is this a horror film? Now for me, the film's horror comes from our helplessness. Um, it, it, it comes from the idea that we can witness terrible events but re be rendered powerless to affect them. And that's the position that our main character is in. So we'll be exploring that question. We'll also be exploring the ethics of spying. We'll talk about some of the gender norms in this. We'll talk about how this film sort of places itself and places us in a voyeuristic capacity. And we'll also be going through some of the filmmaking uh, filmmaking accolades that this film has as well. So let's start with the opening question. Um, what did you think of the film and do you think it's a horror film? Otherwise, otherwise known as, should we even be talking about this? Uh, so who wants to, uh, who wants to start? I'm here with Ben, Shayra and Antonio. Uh, jump in guys, what do you think? Honestly, okay, we, Jim, we talked about this a little bit before the show. I'm having trouble placing this as a horror film. Um, now, I, I do say that I, I definitely kind of agree with what Antonio, or Antonio, um, the fact that you're back again has got me so excited that I can't stop thinking about you. What Noah has said about horror films and their definitions, I find myself in alignment with that. I totally get it, right? I, I definitely have to agree. However, I think this does sort of stereotypically fall within the kind of like whodunit sort of like mystery, kind of like a suspense drama sort of framework. That doesn't mean that it can't also be horror, but I, I don't think it really gets there. Um, and I'm not sure if, if it's something about the narrative or the fact that it has what I see as kind of like a, a happy ending, which is sort of like make it more of like a comedy as opposed to a tragedy. Um, but I don't know, I, I just really, I really can't place it there. Maybe it really doesn't put enough of a shoe. Maybe the gravel in my shoe isn't quite large enough to uh, bother me. Um, but no, I mean, I see it as, as an interesting story. It's fantastic. I love the way that visual storytelling is used. Um, you know, as other people have rightly said, it's almost like having five silent films put in front of you if you place yourself in the, in the wheelchair of the main character. Um, but no, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, stake my claim in the non-horror camp, as it were. Yeah, I would 
um, tend to agree with Ben um, on that count um, because for me, you know, the, as a lawyer, um, the question for me is always, you know, what are the analogies that you make here between this and other narratives, right? So, um, you know, when I ask myself, you know, is this a horror movie? I compare it to other stories that kind of play out similarly, where there's, you know, this like kind of like long kind of period of buildup and observation, and there's this, you know, particular climax where there might be a threat, uh, a mortal threat to one character that kind of gets resolved in the end. All the knowledge kind of gets resolved in the end. We know what happened, and everybody kind of, you know, lives happily ever after. And when I when I'm looking at this, what I'm thinking honestly the most of is something like uh, like a Sherlock Holmes or perhaps an Agatha Christie um, mystery. You know, when you think of what actually happens in in the in in the movie and the way that the character interactions are sequenced, it follows pretty much the, the tropes of something like a, a pretty standard uh, detective story. Um, and so the question is, you know, is something like, you know, uh, the speckled band, right? Conan Doyle's speckled band, is that horror? And so I think a lot of people would have trouble categorizing it, you know, firmly as horror. There might be some people who do, but I think for most people, it would inhabit this kind of borderland area where there, it has some horrific elements. It has some very spooky elements to it, but ultimately it's much more about the, the twists and turns in the, in the gnosis of the movie, you know, how, how, how you know what happened, how the movie reveals particular things to you. And so it's more about the revelation of those plot elements than it is about instilling a particular feeling of of uh, dread in you, which is why they're called more suspense movies usually than horror movies. Um, as far as what I thought of the movie, it's a brilliant movie. You know, it's one of my favorite, or possibly one of my ten favorite movies uh, ever. You know, it's it's as Ben said, it's a fantastically done visual storytelling. Uh, in particular, I think it has one of the best openings of any movie of all time, and I think we can discuss that a little bit more detail later, but it does a really, really wonderful job in the opening. Um, Grace Kelly is does a fantastic performance. Jimmy Stewart gives a fantastic performance. Um, I was telling Mary earlier that I think Grace Kelly's character in this uh, movie is the, that of the best girlfriend ever, like the perfect girlfriend. So, um, and maybe we can discuss that actually a little later because I think that plays into some interesting questions regarding the feminist uh, analysis of the film. So anyway, so yeah, so to sum up, um, brilliant movie. I'm not sure it's horror because, you know, most people wouldn't call something like Sherlock Holmes horror. Um, and this strikes me to be very similar in genre at the end of the day to one of those kinds of, of stories. Well, let me just push back on you for a little bit there. Would you consider The Hounds of Baskerville to be somewhat horror, or at least in the in a Venn diagram that overlaps between mystery and horror? Like something like that seems to have horror elements and also be a Sherlock Holmes story. So when you're when you're pulling this analogy stuff, I wonder if we can kind of confuse it a little bit. And I think that that's exactly, you know, I was kind of hoping that you would go there because that's exactly where I would place that kind of borderland that I was talking about between something that is categorically not horror and something that categorically is. It does inhabit that, that kind of gray area where there are some horrific elements, 
but most people on balance wouldn't necessarily consider it to be horror. Hound of the Baskervilles specifically, I think, cants more in the direction of horror because the the sense of pursuit and dread is more pervasive from the beginning. There's less buildup to it. It's more it's more of a pervasive element in the story. And also, Hound of the Baskervilles, although it resolves in a way that's secular, it leans much more heavily on supernatural tropes, and I think that also pushes it more in the direction of a horror story than a, a human drama like we see in Rear Window. Shayra, what about you? Is this a horror film? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, so... I've been watching a lot of classic movies, as you guys know, and um, I've noticed something with the more classic films. It's going to be a lot more subtle. It's going to be a lot more about mystery, suspense, trying to discover what's happening. And honestly, that's borrowed in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, but we're a lot more gory. We're a lot more like serial killer. We're, we've, we've adjusted to different kinds of genres of horror branched out, got a little bit more fucked up, sure. But um, most classic horror is not on that level. And most classic horror is more about something visceral, something visual, something more claustrophobic, something more uh, out of your control and a little bit more psychological in nature. So I feel like this is absolutely horror, but it's just a classic sense of what it was. Uh, we're a little more numb today. And I can admit that about myself. You know, I, I've i read a lot of really messed up books and watched a lot of messed up movies. I've seen, you know, some really violent things now. So, and plus we're also exposed to the internet, you know, where you can actually look up real live video footage of some of the worst atrocities in the world. Um, so it's harder to gauge, but I will say as far as, you know, what is classic horror? I think it fits right in there with Dracula, with Frankenstein, uh, you know, with uh, Phantom Carriage and with Doctor of Caligari. Um, these are all just the way it was kind of done. And Alfred Hitchcock even kind of adjusted the language of horror in a lot of ways. In fact, he made it so mundane, it became TV fodder. We, we were watching Alfred Hitchcock on TV at a certain point in time where it was just normal to see this older, puffier man making jokes about murdering people and taking pictures of himself dead in a fucking river. <laughs> like, it's so messed up. He's He had a sense of humor about it, even in The Birds and even in this film. He had a huge sense of humor about death. If you watch Rope, he has a huge sense of humor about death. Um, but maybe he adjusted the language so that it's not as scary, maybe. I don't know, but it definitely is part of what built our horror language today. A lot of horror people borrow from his style and from his death scenes and from the suspense that he builds. So um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to gauge because things change throughout time. But I think one thing is for sure, most horror buffs have absorbed a lot of his stuff and enjoy the way that he tells stories and, and enjoy his way of creating suspense. And suspense is absolutely necessary in horror. We just need a little bit more blood and violence today, I think, to uh, keep us a little bit more on our toes, maybe. I don't know. 
Right. I mean, there's certainly like this is coming out in 1954 when we kind of have two levels of uh, the genre. One which is sort of schlocky Ed Wood style, you know, the monster of the week kind of movies that are um, almost played for comedy. And then we have the more serious noir films uh, such as Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock, where suspense plays uh, plays a, a heavy role. Um, and so I think these generic questions are really interesting, especially as we're sort of proceeding in this podcast and talking about, we're, like we're looking for the best horror films and does this uh, does this this sort of fit that that litmus test? And then, I mean, even is there a litmus test for horror? I mean, Ben Ben and I were talking before the show, and uh, actually, I, instead of speaking for you, Ben, why don't you give your uh, definition of what you thought horror was, and we can kind of repeat some of what we were talking about before the show and uh, for our, for our viewers and listeners. Um, yeah, sure, sure. So, um, as I was telling Jim, and I think I think I've probably brought this up in previous episodes, um, but kind of my sort of going thesis about what makes horror horror is that a horror film is essentially at its core. Once you strip away um, everything from it and get down to its element, is a study of the fear of death. And I, th I feel like that seems like an obvious thing to say, <clears throat> but when you really get down to it, I mean, you can even make distinctions of you know, is a movie. Um, uh, a detective drama about like who killed somebody and that's going to be more of a, a movie about somebody killing someone but not necessarily a, a movie about the fear of death right so like if you dig into this uh, in particular I don't really see that element but I do kind of buy the desensitization angle that you're you're taking with this Shara in fact like watching this I was actually a little bit surprised that there was kissing or that we even opened with like a view of a the back of a woman who is presumed to be topless I was like I can't believe what I'm watching when was this released again um, because I just didn't expect that for the time period so you know maybe it is true that some of those elements could potentially be there and I just wasn't picking up on them We'll talk about the Breen Code uh, all a little bit later, but yeah, this is uh, this is Alfred Hitchcock's way of sort of putting his uh, middle finger up toward the uh, the Breen Code and all of the basically doing all of the things up until the line um, according to the Breen Code. But yeah, like your idea about um, horror movies being something that's particularly about death and. Uh, Noah's idea about how a film that leaves a, a stone in your shoe is is a horror movie. In each of those cases, I can subjectively and objectively to some degree say that Annie Hall is a horror film. It has left a stone in my shoe. It, ha it is uh, narratively about death and about how death renders one in, like uh, incapable of feeling happiness. And so in that's in, in both your definition and Noah's definition, Annie Hall fits the definition of a horror film. Yet objectively speaking, Annie Hall is not a horror film. Um, and uh, it's, it's clearly a romantic comedy and it's clearly following a lot of those romantic comedy tropes. So I, it's, it's all of these definitions of horror are um, slippery and difficult to sort of pin down. Um, and and uh, uh, Shara's idea that there is uh, <laughs> Shara's idea that there's sort of a a um, uh, a desensitization that has happened after the Breen Code goes away in the '70s 
and uh, uh, well, late six, uh, mid sixties, and then into the seventies is when it really ramped up. Uh, when when adult content really ramped up in movies, um, after after uh, the Brain Code went away, um, and nineteen sixty four is when we actually first saw code accepted nudity in films with a Sidney Lumet film called The Pawnbroker. Uh, film history uh, class later. Um, but even but, even after from, that, uh, there was a problem of the video nasties in England. Right. Uh, where a lot of the horror films were like put out and then immediately taken down and said, oh, that's a video nasty. You can't watch that. And in fact, someone got imprisoned for making a video nasty. Uh, and that was a horror film. So like we have this problem where people were censoring for such a long time this was about as risque as they could get for the time period. Uh, had they not had those blocks, who knows what rear window would have looked like? <laughs> you know, who knows? There might have been some boobs, some sex, some blood, some gore. Who knows? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I I think they. Well, yeah. As I said, the Breen Code is uh, is certainly an interesting guideline for making movies. And it's what Hitchcock was was operating under, and uh, formerly called the Hayes Code, and then Breen took over. Um, now, at this stage, it would be called the Breen Code, um, and then, of course, that that segues into the um, the MPAA and the ratings that we have uh, currently. Um, but anyway, Antonio, you have in the chat you talked about sort of an interesting idea about how, you know, an interesting reply to Shara's idea about our desensitization to violence and um, how uh, post-Vietnam, well, I'll let you explain it. Go ahead. Yeah, the uh, the point that I, was, that I was making, or I guess the question I was asking to be more specific is, um, is, it, is it possible to separate, I guess, movies generally, but horror movies specifically into sort of a pre and post-Vietnam era? Because um, my mother was a journalist, and she she you know came up during the Vietnam era, and um, one of the really interesting things that she's pointed out um, is the degree to which having cameras on the ground in Vietnam that didn't have government censors snipping out everything unattractive, how much of an impact that had on media in general, how how being able to see the raw images coming back from Vietnam had not only a tremendous political impact, but it had a tremendous impact on the kind of media that people wanted to see. Suddenly there was a demand for much grittier media, much more realistic media, much higher levels of sex and violence because they were seeing the real world on television in Vietnam and the, this increased the demand for it in other forms of media as well. And so I'm wondering if if we can't say you know that that Rear Window isn't more of a horror film because it comes from this pre-Vietnam era where where allusion and subtext is a much more important source of things like horror and violence and sex than you would see after where there's a much higher demand for grittier, more realistic um, exposition. I think there's uh, there's two answers to that. I, I mean, certainly, I think Vietnam plays a role. Um, the Vietnam was one of the was the first war where it was kind of really 
shoved into people's faces and you've got uh, Walter Cronkite and, and the embedded reporters and all of that footage sort of coming back. But um, we also have to take a look at the context of Hollywood in the 50s going into the 60s and 70s. In the 1950s, they were dealing with the biggest threat to their business ever, and that was television. Um, and in order to differentiate themselves from television, they went to things like sensory apparatus where you had like jiggling seats and, and uh, in some cases they would blow like air or water at you during the movie. If there was air or water being blown at you during it, blown at the characters. So, and that didn't work. That was kind of cheesy and schlocky. Then they went to big screens and that was still not enough to bring people back. So what they ended up doing in the sixties the is sort of transitioning the brain code from a hard set of principles that films had to follow to the MPAA where there were ratings that said, these are the films that are not for children. These are the films that could be for children. And uh, Pawn Broker 1964 is an adult Holocaust movie that shouldn't be for children. It contains, it contains bare breasts and, and discussions of the Holocaust. Um, it, and it was an adult film. And, and that sort of led to uh, you know, films like Midnight Cowboy and then the explosion of uh, gritty adult cinema in the late 60s and early 70s. And, and throughout the 70s, actually, um, Jaws being an, an example that we talked about last week, where the way that Hollywood differentiated itself from television was by having adult content and high quality themes that are high quality uh, films and, and adult themes that were not uh, applicable to be streamed into everybody's uh, everybody's living rooms. So I do think Vietnam plays a part, but I also think that we've got this larger context to to worry about. And and Hitchcock is he's 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 operating under code rules throughout most of his career. In fact, all of his career, I can't think of a, a film that wouldn't have fit the Breen code that he has done. Um, and and then of course he his career goes away and careers like Sidney Lumet, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg to a lesser degree, um, the, and uh, John Schlesinger. Um, I had trouble with that name. Uh, th those, those careers start to take off because they're willing to take on uh, more, more interesting and uh, adult themes and, and provide more adult content in their films. Um, all of this to say that uh, Rear Window exists exactly at 1954, which is exactly when Breen stopped his his war or his uh, his reign as as um, sort of the uh, the head of Hollywood production code. Um, so but one I, example, actually, I, I would love to throw in here. So the movie that you just talked about, Jim, being out in 64 um, is being kind of like the first where we see sort of like this leap into more adult themes. Um, I, I want to point out Rosemary's Baby as an example here. And so I, I, I wouldn't question the status of that movie being non-horror ever. I mean, I think it's very obviously, um, very clearly, very typically a horror movie. Um, and while I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, there are some breasts in that film, I don't think it's breasts that necessarily make a horror film a horror film, although 
you, you might argue with some of the tropes. Yeah, um, but no, I, yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> argue that it's the horror film. Good, good. Um, and so the interesting thing about that, though, is that we never see anyone get killed in the movie. There's no gore. There's really, I don't think, any violence except that sort of like one scene where we kind of see Rosemary being sort of like drugged, right? And then there's like some implications there um, and then potentially some hallucinations. But for the large part of the film, there's never anything graphic shown. Um, and even at the end, whenever we get that final payoff, you don't actually see the baby, which is supposed to be, you know, what it's supposed to be. I guess, like, I won't try and spoil Rosemary's baby for anyone who hasn't seen it. I'm you know? pretty sure the baby but looked exactly like you. That's, it, I, it, that's the way I... It may have been it. me. In fact, it may have been me, but you'll never hear that from me. Um, yeah, so, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, there's really nothing in that that would make that sort of, like, gory or anything like that. It's not a slasher film. You know, it's right there at the cusp of where we start to see, like, really brutal films in the 70s and then into the 80s. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, drawing an analogy between that and Rear Window, it's like, well, if that woman in the beginning of the movie of Rear Window had turned around, that would probably be, the, like, the one substantial difference that we could draw between that and Rosemary's Baby, except one of them is very clearly a horror, in my mind, and one's not. So, I don't know. Yeah, I think that... Uh... Yeah, as I said, I don't think breasts make a movie or make a horror movie a horror movie. Uh, but I, I think The Pawnbroker was the first film. It was in 1964, Rosemary's Baby, 1968. Um, 64 was the first code accepted. That is to say that the nascent MPAA uh, judged The Pawnbroker to be able to be released into mainstream theaters and that was the first film that contained breasts that also had that sort of stamp of approval. And this was the beginning of the MPAA as a sort of censorship board. Um, but anyway, we've, we've done uh, a lot of films. Can I do one more? Here. I just want to use ahead. one yeah, more yeah, example. Yeah. Uh, just because we have talked about this a couple of times, this film. But um, one really good example to bring up is the 1960 film Peeping Tom. Uh, this was a film done by a guy who's done pretty normal style films up until then and then decided to do a slasher film about a voyeuristic guy who goes around stabbing girls and filming while he's stabbing them. He has the stabbing mechanism attached to his camera with the mirror so they can watch themselves die in that way. And uh, it killed his career. His career dead. Done. For life. He was destroyed. A uh, British guy who is known for being a great filmmaker and his entire career. So even without the censorship issues, uh, I don't know if the audiences were quite, quite ready for it. It would have been like trying to, you know, play some Black Sabbath for your grandma. And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> no. So um, it, it, it becomes very complicated, right? Like, I don't know if they were ready for that. It might have been a little bit too ahead of its time, right? So, Keeping Tom 1962, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I don't think grandma was ready for a, a, a seeing that kind of violence. But I mean, there it could be argued. Uh, I've watched stuff with younger kids and they freak the fuck out over watching Ghost Whisperer. You know what I mean? Like, this is scary. And I'm like, this is like daytime TV to me. What the heck is wrong with you kids? So I don't know. I guess it just depends on the audience, right? Well, Gremlins scared the shit out of me when I was five, so that's uh, I've I've developed since then. Um, all right, so let's sort of segue into uh, 
uh, some of our other themes that that happen in this movie. And maybe we can even talk um, about the movie instead of uh, about uh, code specific stuff. Um, it's all my fault, I know. Uh, but let's talk about that. There's one quote that I was thought was really interesting in this film, and it was uh, Jeff, uh, the Jimmy Stewart character, says, "I wonder if I wonder if it's ethical to watch man with binoculars and a long focus lens." Do you, do you suppose it's ethical, even if you prove he didn't commit a crime? Uh, Lisa replies, I'm not much into rear window ethics. Um, this begin. This is one of sort of the central questions of this film and of Jeff's character. Um, is Jeff's behavior ethically justified? What do you think, guys? No. No, maybe not. I don't know, because... I mean, if, if you if you sort of take the rear window of an apartment to be an analogy for like a backdoor in a program, then I mean, obviously this has like clear lines that you could draw into like the NSA um, and privacy laws. And that sort of goes into the line of thinking. It's like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, then what's the problem with people looking through all your stuff? But I don't think that's necessarily a line of argument that any of, uh, well, maybe some of us, I don't know, would any of us take that line of argument? I feel like I'm I'm more on the, the privacy side than the non-privacy side, personally. All right, am I ready to tell you guys about a job I had? Yes, I am. I used to watch people. It was a job I got paid to do. I was big brother. I was the eye in the sky. Uh, my literal job was that I watched two screens, each screen had about 50 cameras, uh, camera angles in different locations all over Canada and America. I watched malls. I watched car dealerships. I watched a lot of people doing a lot of things and I got paid to do it by corporations, making sure their stuff doesn't get stolen or stuff doesn't get damaged or we, we at least catch things in the act. Um, I saw people having sex in elevators. I saw people pooping in their hands and throwing it over fences. I've seen it all. I've watched all of you guys walk out of your parking lot, scratch your butts. There are people watching you everywhere you go. It's just a fact. And there are cameras everywhere. You go into a Target, you will see at least 200 cameras in the ceiling. It is crazy how much we are being watched. It Voyeurism is a thing too with Facebook. In a way, that's a form Social media is a form of voyeurism and a form of stalking. We get off on this stuff. This is something we enjoy doing. What is my ex up to who I broke up with 10 years ago? I hope he's miserable. Let me go see what he's doing. This is the kind of shit we engage in on a daily basis. And it might be a sickness, but maybe it's human nature. And is it so bad to look out your window? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's the complicated part, right? He happens to be looking out his window. Is that against the law? Can we actually rule against that? Maybe not filming, but nobody can get mad at him for looking out his window, right? Yeah, I think I think here it's um it this is this is the point at which it's really helpful to to underline how much our notions of privacy are culturally and technologically specific, right? Because if you think about it, like one of the things that, um, you know, I lived in Japan for a year and taught English um, after college. And one of the things that, that is very interesting about Japanese culture is that Japanese culture has very different notions of what are appropriate boundaries of privacy and, and uh, you know, personal decorum. There are certain things that are much more taboo than they are in Western culture. And there are certain things that are just totally not at all taboo relative to Western culture. 
Um, like for example, um, your weight in Japan is not a private thing. If somebody asks you, you know, people, people will ask you, you know, how much do you weigh? Like we ask one another, Oh, what do you do for a living? You know? Um, and if you come back from a vacation and you put on a couple pounds, they'll, they'll go, Oh wow, you came back and you're super fat. So you need to go, go on a diet, you know, and just totally frank, you know, and they'll do this to one another. It's not something that that's, you know, exclusive to the out group or anything. And so the, the notions of what is private it, it, it are kind of are very different. And, and this reflects in media as well. You know, there's a sense that if you have a closed door, uh, then whatever is in there should be ignored and left private, even if you clearly know exactly what's going on in there in Japan. Um, and it's because the population density is such that that you're going to be living next to somebody where, who is separated from you by a you know sheet of rice paper. And, you know, you're going to hear a lot of what they're up to, whether or not you even want to. And so the, the culture, you know, treats it as if it's not exposed in some way, if you can't see in, then it's private. And so even if you know, you just ignore it on a, on a cultural level, right? Um, but similarly, it, one of the interesting things is what you do expose is kind of regarded much more as fair game than would be the case in Western culture. For example, you know, with us, if, we, if you have something out on like your balcony and somebody messes with it, that would be considered, you know, a, a crime. People consider that to be a burglary or, or what have you. You know what I mean? It'd be considered, you know, a pretty big deal if, you know, you had uh, laundry and somebody came by your, your patio and just stole all your laundry and just walked off. But in, in Japanese culture, this is regarded as much more of a nuisance than a, than an actual crime. You know, it's like if somebody it's, if, if you hang your laundry out on your patio and somebody, you know, comes and, and steals your panties, then somebody, then the attitude that the Japanese will take about that is, well, I mean, you know, you could have dried them inside where nobody could see them. You left them out that's a kind of more exposed he just kind of came by and it was that that's a more public area so it's it's a nuisance yeah but what are you going to do about it it's the public area so um and then the other aspect of that is if you kind of rewind back into our own history and you consider you know what what life was like in a more agrarian more uh, rural environment um, you know, also having grown up in an agrarian rural environment, I can tell you that everybody knows what everybody else is up to and everybody's nosy about what everybody else is up to in a way that is definitely not true of city dwellers. You know, with city dwellers, the person who lives across from you in the hall, but you might not even know the dude's name. You might not have ever even spoken. It, it's entirely possible. Whereas if you live out in the country, there could be somebody who lives 15 miles away and, you know, stops by three times a week to chat with you and drop off a thing of soup and, you know, look over at your vegetable bed and see how the tulips are coming up. And you know that they're going to convey that information off to somebody else if they see anything odd. And, um, and so we've evolved away from that because we've moved into cities and we've largely adopted these more, these more private values um, of a greater, you know, uh, a more technological, more infrastructurally developed society. But these aren't a given, these are in definite flux. And so um, I think one of the most important things to ask about, about the ethics of Rear Window is how much of that is culturally specific? How much of this just doesn't hold if you consider it from the perspective of another culture, of another century, um, and maybe even just of another personality? Different people have a great deal of difference in the degree of transparency that they're comfortable with.
that's actually the most interesting thing about this film though, right? Uh, we could talk about the aspects of it being okay to be voyeurs in that way, but we literally are doing it when we watch it. We are the ones who are the voyeurs and we are the bad guys in that respect. If we see that as immoral, looking at your neighbors, we're doing that right now. We're, and not only that, we're formulating judgments by looking at these people through the window with this only these little parts and segments of their life being exposed to us, just like he is doing. And so even when we're judging him in a way, we're going to end up judging ourselves if we are judging him. And then it becomes a hypocrisy, which is exactly what Hitchcock is up to. He would like to fuck with us. That's his favorite thing to do is to take the audience and, and screw with our heads. And so that's actually the element he was trying to add to this film. When you are trying to think of the ethics of what he's doing, you yourself are engaging in that activity or, you know, along with Jimmy. So. Well, there actually, there, there's another really interesting point too that draws sort of directly from the film. And first, I mean, I, th I think the question in my mind is like, why are all these people leaving all their windows open in the first place, right? It's like, I mean, there's a lot going on throughout their entire house, even like one room to the next to the next, you're seeing right in, the, the blinds are not drawn. Some people do, but at least like most of the, the people directly opposite of our main character are just letting it all sort of like be open. And so like, I, I kind of wonder if this was just a, um, um, a MacGuffin sort of like type of thing, right? Like, is it there just to like help the narrative or is it they literally a choice? They explained it in the very beginning when you see the sweat pouring out of his body and they show the temperature, it's too hot. And back in those days, they did not have air conditioner the way we did. So they have to have their windows open to just feel comfortable in their own homes. They are exposed because of weather and that makes them vulnerable to his voyeurism. It's not their fault they have to have their windows open. It's not this pretty blonde girl's fault that he can look in and, and judge her having guys over at her house to judge if she's loose. Um, and it's more like they don't wanna be hot. They don't wanna sweat, right? Okay. And so I, I only I know that because I live in a house with no AC because I live in Washington now. It occasionally gets to the 90 degree weather, uh, but usually right now it's only 67 degrees. It's the summer, it's mid July and it's 67 degrees outside and it's a little bit misty, but sometimes it's 90 degrees we do not have AC. So what happens is we have to open up all of our windows. I hear my neighbors fights. I hear their kids screaming. I hear them arguing about broccoli. Um, I, there are times where my daughter's like, what the fuck is happening out there? And opens the windows. There's all these people like, you know, doing stuff in their homes and you hear their whole lives. We, and we're not in apartments. Apartments are even more so contained in each other's space. We have gaps between our homes yet I hear their conversations when the windows are open. So I think that's kind of the point, right? It's uh, it's making sure that you know you're vulnerable when your windows are open and some of us have to open our windows at times. Okay. To, to what extent do you think that that's, a, that that's kind of a hidden or implicit critique of um, our tendency to undervalue our privacy? You know what I mean? Like in, in a sense, you can you can say that all of these people here are trading security for comfort, right? They they could live a much more private life than they have. They could not expose any of these, you know, deeply uh, private activities to other people, but they're electing not to because if they did that, it would be 85 degrees in the house, and they're not going to do that, you know. And so, to what extent? To what extent is it is it casting the blame back at the 
back at the victims for the voyeurism because by saying, you know, you have the opportunity to be more private, as indeed the movie shows at a couple points, you know, whether be damned, a couple people do pull their shades at various points in the movie. And so to what extent, to what extent are they, to what extent are they, are they trading security for comfort in a way that makes them responsible for the potential outcomes? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that goes into the whole thing back into the NSA, right? It's like we're, we're putting all of our data and all of our mention, our lives out there in sort of like a public space, specifically because of the small amount of enjoyment uh, it brings back to us. So that's really interesting, too. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to sort of explore if that literally was the reason, because they feel like, um, one, yes, maybe it is because of what Cher was saying about the weather. Maybe it's literally because of comfort. But two... I, I kind of also felt like that there's an example in the movie that, that proves that they sort of wanted that stuff out there, at least to some degree, because there's supposed to be this neighborly element. And so like whenever we have um, that woman lose her dog, right? So like she looks down, the dog has been strangled. Um, and then she has this whole big speech about how no one's paying attention to each other and how that's such a huge problem. No one's being neighborly. No one's watching. We're not taking care of each other, even though I guess everyone's windows are all open. They kind of want that sort of, community sense of everyone sort of watching out for each other. Um, so yeah, I wasn't sure if that was uh, intentional or if that was supposed to be narratively connected. Um, but it was kind of interesting that it does seem to be the case that there is an argument being made within the movie for being less private and being a little bit more connected. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, you're, you're getting into a lot of the themes that um, I wanted to, to talk about this evening, especially as it relates to um, sort of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, which would suggest that a film like Rear Window, um, as a cultural artifact, would remind us of state power, uh, remind us of the idea that we're always under observation. And uh, in 2019, when we're deliberately wanting, deliberately putting ourselves on display, deliberately wanting to be noticed, um, it's almost as though we're not as Antonio said, we're not just we're we're not trading um, security for comfort. We're trading away our security for fame, or at least a chance of fame, or a perceive or a perception of fame um, on social media as we post pictures of where we are and and uh, hope to get as many likes as possible, and on and on and on. All of that is is not it's it's even less it's even less than comfort. It's it's this chance at fame. And I think that that's sort of an animating principle of uh, social media in 2019, one that I'm not particularly comfortable with, but I wonder if uh, what Rear Window has to say in 2019. Well, um, I think one of the most interesting stories that was added to the short story uh, was about Miss Torso. Um, I think she can exemplify a lot of the young girls on social media today. A lot of people will look at her and think that she's trying to get attention in certain ways or that she's maybe acting a little slutty by being flirtatious with other men um, or the fact that she wears revealing clothing uh, and people are judging her based off of how she dresses or based off of uh, what kind of people she hangs out with. But what we end up finding out at the end of the film is that she was actually just trying to build up her career 
and she was trying to get to a point where she could take care of financial stuff until her soldier husband came back from the war. And, uh, and it was a very short, nerdy, glasses-wearing, you know, probably someone that you wouldn't expect kind of a, a husband that came home and, and loved on her. And so we come from a time where idiots uh, will come on the internet <laughs> and say stuff about girls' boobs or the way that they look, as uh, someone in the chat just did, and make judgments on that person, right? And then they're usually wrong. There's a lot more than what is exposed on social media. There's a lot more than what you might see in a, a window of someone's little point of view of their life for a split second, right? Um, so even if we are able to spy on each other in so many different ways, right? Uh, it, it's not gonna be the complete person. You have to actually sit down with a person and get to know them inside and out to be able to find out who they are. And that's actually a really big aspect of this story, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. Um, and so as much as we are exposed today and, and there's people spying on us and stuff, it's still hard to get the whole story, right? That's, that's the story we're told. Yeah, I, I had to, uh, Take care of that. Um, hopefully that. Uh, thank you for your. Thank you for watching. Um, and goodbye. Um, and yes, my background has fallen down. Sad things happen during uh, during a but during uh, during a live show. Um, all right. So what about you, Ben and uh, Antonio? Do you want to talk about this sort of Foucauldian Frankfurt shit as we uh, Frankfurt School shit as we uh, we go through here? Well, now I'm actually just super interested in seeing what all kinds of books and movies that you have in your background now that we have a clear view into your into your little window there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it's literally yeah, all I can uh, see all of my shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my background is currently on the floor right over there. So, uh, uh, yeah, live show. Life sucks. Uh, <laughs> I have Perfect given show for us to get voyeuristic to my office. <laughs> notice everything of my life um that's the chair garrett was sitting in all right moving on <laughs> actually now that uh sherry you were talking about um kind of like the, the belly dancer chick um and sort of like a little bit about her life i actually thought like her arc um was was pretty interesting and so i know that we mentioned this earlier um about how there's a lot of really good visual storytelling going on. And I think like her, her story was really interesting. Like we had almost like a full arc, I feel like, um, and sort of like this real character development, just sort of like watching the little scenes that we had. And while that isn't a complete picture, obviously, as, as you're mentioning, sort of like by the end of it, I think we have a really good um, kind of like story, at least around her character that, that I think says a lot. Um, and it's really interesting because like at the beginning, obviously we have her in there. We have this like viewpoint of her as this particular type of person. And then as we progress, obviously we see her, um, you know, inviting people over and having these parties. And there's this really interesting conversation that happens between our two sort of like protagonists or whatever about that person's life. Um, and it's really interesting because Grace Kelly's character specifically mentions that she is not in love with any of those people, those guys that she invited over. 
And of course, like that sort of ties back into, you know, Grace characters, Grace Kelly's character development, um, because like she essentially sees herself in this other person, right? She's, she's expected to look a certain way to do certain things, but that's not who she really is on the inside. And then by the end of it, of course, we see somebody coming home from a war, um, having the military outfit on, and she's so excited and she's over affectionate with this person and really just happy to see them coming back. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like there's there's this really super good sort of like character development, even though no words are ever spoken from this person. Like we don't really have any dialogue, but we see this sort of like full character arc where she goes from like where we have these assumptions about who she is, about her character, into something a little bit more um, more comprehensive and complete, showing showing a little bit more depth there. Um, yeah, I don't know. So it's like interesting, like her as a particular character study. Um, sort of like sticking out in that uh, that example. I don't know. It's just it's it's really cool. Uh, it's really good how Hitchcock was able to do that. Well, actually, um, oh, go ahead. Actually, yeah, go ahead, Shara. I was just gonna say the uh, screenwriter who worked with Alfred Hitchcock on this. Um, he really wanted to add some elements of humanity, and I think that he was the perfect guy for this. But the way that he got hired on with Alfred, um, he had worked a a movie theater at one point in time in his career where all they had was a Hitchcock film that played three times a day for a month. So he learned it inside and out and saw the flaws in it. So when he went in for this job to write with Alfred Hitchcock, uh, he basically told him where he might have been able to change some stuff and immediately got hired on to work with him, which is like a great story. I love a director who's like, oh yes, challenge me, call me out on my crap, uh, tell me how I can do this better. So um, that was cool. but. On top of that, he he was able to develop characters that were really neat. Like none of these characters were really necessarily in the story, right? Uh, even Grace Kelly's character was never in the original short story. This was stuff that was created by that screenwriter, and they're amazing, like character. Like there's layered characters too. Um, it's it's some of the best characters I've ever seen in a film, honestly, and uh, I love it. Yeah, and if we actually we take that over to the woman who um, we saw as being like the lonely person, right? Like, I mean, that's that's another fantastic example of this. And so, I don't know, like Antonio, you mentioned maybe like a feminist analysis of this film, and like I think this this sort of like this girl that we just talked about is a great way to sort of think about that. But also, the woman who was kind of like alone for most of the time, like she has you know dinner by herself, she's like super lonely, and she's like trying to talk to herself and make this conversation, but clearly she's like really really depressed. Later on, we see, hey, great, she finally invited somebody over. She made a friend, and now he's coming over. They're going to have a great time. Maybe they're going to have dinner. And he makes a mistake, uh, and she has to kick him out. Um, he didn't treat her quite as well as he should have. And so she reacts badly and kicks him out. And then, of course, like we see even what I assume is her getting ready to write like a suicide note and like take sleeping pills. And then I think at the very end of the movie, we see how she's like hanging out with the musician or something like that, who was presumed to have kind of like a rough relationship or marriage and is now living alone or something like that. But again, like we see this sort of full cycle character development and almost like even like a redemption story as a result, of course, like this, the community coming together over a murder being solved or whatever. But yeah, I mean, fantastic there. And we see kind of like that reaction to 
men not being quite who they need to be to the women in their lives, right? Like obviously the main story is about a guy who doesn't see the value in the person who's right there trying to, you know, beg for his attention. We see a man murdering his wife who needs his help and relies on him for everything. We see assumptions being made about this woman who's kind of a socialite, whose boyfriend is out in the war. We see this woman who just wants it, like someone to share her life with, who is ready to kill herself being mistreated by the one man she trusts, right? So, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting dynamics here between men and women on display across every single story that we see almost. Yeah, that leads us to a lot of the gender criticisms associated with this film that I think are really worth exploring. Antonio, I know you probably are chomping at the bit to go go through some of this. Um, like it, it seemed to me at least that all of the male characters, at least at the beginning of the movie, were like quote unquote henpecked, right? You know, Jeff's view on marriage is that the man gradually is reduced to sort of this boring consumer, me suburban mediocrity. Long stretches of dialogue sort of express his views on relationships as being emasculating. And then, of course, Lisa's arc during the film is to move from a, a, a socialite who wouldn't be able to cut it in the the hard-boiled world of war photography to actually being an adventurer, um, at least during the, the course of the film. And then in that last scene, we see her reading a book about like adventuring. And then she looks over, finds Jimmy Stewart asleep, and then switches to heart uh, to bizarre. And uh, so like the question is, is is this film with its display of gender interactions, the, the interactions between men and women in this film, is it somewhat misogynistic? Does it have, uh, is there a way in which it's dealing with women in a reductive way? Um, especially in some of the, the, the scenes that you highlighted, Ben, like uh, what, I mean, Antonio, I know you want to go out on a, a, a feminist uh, criticism of this. Shayra, you probably do too. Let's uh, uh, go ahead and jump in, folks. What do you think? <laughs> Ladies first, it seems uh, Antonio uh, is saying. <laughs> he knows. <laughs> no, you can go first if you want. But I, I just want to say, I do think there was a lot of misogyny, but I think it was purposely placed in this film. And I think that there was a learning that occurred. And that's actually one of the reasons why I really appreciate Alfred Hitchcock in some ways, because that is a very progressive viewpoint to show the shortcomings of guys and to show how they might be extraordinarily wrong, much like, uh, you know, Miss Torso being perceived as a, a slut. And then it's no, she was doing what she needed to do to get where she needed to go in her career uh, to help make a home for her husband when he got home. So, um, and, and also even at the very end when Grace Kelly's character, you know, she's trying to be in love with this guy who says he wants an adventurous woman in his life, not someone who's uh, obsessed over beauty and going out to the finest restaurants and looking all fancy and stuff. He wants someone who is willing to take risks and all that. But, she tries, she, she's looking at a book about the Himalayas and going exploring. And then she goes, you know what, fuck this. It, it opens up, you know, her beauty magazine anyway. And you know what, he just gotta, he's gotta accept. She likes to look pretty. She likes to wear nice things. And there's nothing wrong with her wanting to do those things. There's nothing wrong with her being herself. There's a lot of learning that men have to do in this film. And there's a lot of wrongdoing that men do in this film. And we learn about that wrongdoing. So 
it's actually very interesting for a 1954 film. I don't know what you're going to say, Antonio, but that's my take. So um, recently uh, on Netflix, uh, they finally, after it, it much uh, delay and with much fanfare, released the um, animated series Evangelion, uh, which I rewatched some of recently. It's one of my favorite shows. Um, and one of the interesting parallels that can be drawn between these two uh, products, you know, Evangelion and, and Rear Window, is that, that narratively that they both are really concerned with the theme of um, security. And they're th concerned with the theme of security both, both in a very practical sense, you know, Evangelion is, you know, how do we keep the earth safe, right? And Rear Window obviously has some very, you know, immediate concerns with security. But they also are concerned with security in the existential sense. You know, how do I how do I know that I'm go not going to be hurt by the person that I'm with? How do I how do I manage my human relationships? You know, how do I how do I take the right risks in my human relationships? Um, and so um, I think that you know the 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 central theme of Evangelion ends up being that that security is more or less illusory, that, that you're going to end up having to take the risks anyway, that, that the vulnerability exists regardless, and so you need to accept it and embrace it and incorporate it as part of your, as part of your psyche and part of your life. And I think that um, Rear Window takes very much the same um, bottom line on the notion of security. I think that it dissects the notion of security progressively to show that um, security is largely illusory, and that uh, and that it is our embrace of insecurity that gives us the potential for for growth and progression and you know humanity, right? So um, so to tie this into into the, the feminist analysis, um, I think that I think the the film is, as you said, very, you know, has some deliberate elements of misogyny in it. But I actually think that that the movie—I don't know if I would call it a feminist, um, a feminist narrative—but it definitely, if you apply feminist analysis to it, it definitely is more complicated than just reflecting 1950s values, you know, on sex sexuality. Um, because, um, in particular, um, um, Grace Kelly's character and her relationship with um, with Jeff uh, evolves over the the course of the movie in, in some really interesting ways. You know, she subverts Jeff's expectations relationally. Jeff takes, Jeff, Jeff kind of abandons his security to some degree by, by continuing to take a chance on her, despite the fact that he's worried that she's going to be this homebound creature that is going to exert a gravity well on him, you know, in which he expresses in a kind of misogynistic view of marriage. By the end of the movie, it's clear that she's actually going to be a huge help to him and that she is in some ways more daring than he is, right? Um, and um, and likewise, you know, for, for her part, she doesn't know at the beginning of the movie that she really has this capacity for risk in her. And it's her desire to be with um, Jeff that, that spurs her to say, you know, it is, this is worth some insecurity. I'm going to run out there and maybe get murdered. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, now, and now we'll see what this does for the relationship. So, but, but I think that this is also reflected in the side stories that we see as well. Um, you know, we see, we see honestly a pretty good balance in, in Miss Torso because Miss Torso, you know, she, she trades 
her security for comfort in the sense that she has to enter, she goes and, and socializes with all these men to get attention, right? That to, to feed that existential need for, for comfort. Um, and that obviously is risky. You know, she's shown beating them off with a stick, basically. Um, and so, um, but at the end of the day, um, she, rather than go with any of these sort of sure things, she waits for the, the short kind of pudgy little dude who really does care about her as a person and isn't just going to treat her like a piece of meat, you know? And I think that's, that's, you know, positive from the feminist perspective as well. And likewise with, you know, Miss Lonely Hearts, it's not, ultimately she empo she's empowered to go out of her little environment. She, she goes out from her apartment and it's when we see her out with somebody else in a space that she doesn't control that we see her having that chance at happiness. So I think a feminist analysis of the movie, honestly, is pretty positive overall. Um, it does look like the female characters are treated pretty respectfully and that their storylines go toward their empowerment rather than their reduction to something that is stereotypical or that, or that plays into some kind of expectation that we have. The movie takes pains to subvert that. Um, uh, can I talk about one of the women? Uh, I, I don't. I don't know how we haven't brought her up yet, but uh, I think she's played by Thelma Ritter. Uh, she was really great in Pillow Talk. She is so amazing. I love this actress. She just gives it to to you straight. And also, uh, I feel like I related to that character the most because when she's talking to Grace Kelly about <laughs> what happened to the body, she's like, "If they buried the body, they would have to dig the whole hole down, and, and the person would have to be." straight up and down, that's impossible. It, the body parts are probably strewn all over the city. And she's just like, oh, let's stop. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> I'm that friend. <laughs> and I related to that character so much. And I love that there's a female character that uh, is maybe not so like, oh, I'm posh and uh. she's like, no, I'm just gonna say it straight to you and, and give it give it to you like you need it. You know, oh, oh, you can't, you can't be with a perfect woman. Okay, whatever, whatever. Um, but I also want to point out that conversation they had when she's massaging him um, and doing physical therapy to him. Um, they're talking about him marrying this girl. And she's like, oh, you don't want to be with a perfect girl. And he's like, no, I don't want perfect. I get that. I think that conversation is a legit one when it comes to relationships. We don't want to be with a perfect person. That is not uh, realistic. It, it seems fake. It seems fraudulent. And as you can see with his character, he likes to look deeper, you know, below the surface, what is really going on. And I think he felt like he didn't actually know her yet. And it wasn't until she did something risky that he was like, okay, I, I see her now. And he finally noticed who she was as a person. He was also very scared and like, what the hell, stop. Uh, but in the same token, it showed that she has a flaw and that she has a part of her that is just gonna do something crazy. Um, and I think it made her more enticing to him. So I, I find it interesting. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. She's absolutely perfect. Everything's wonderful about her. He doesn't notice her. The second she does something stupid, he's like, whoa, okay, I think I like her. <laughs> and I think that's so funny. I don't know why, but it seems so real. And, and maybe that is what makes this such a great story is it seems so real. I think we make some weird decisions in our lives. Yeah, and perfect casting with Grace Kelly, right? Because she is, she certainly looks perfect. And she, uh, you know, she's got that sort of statuesque demeanor about her. And she's, 
just absolutely lovely. Um, and Hitchcock, uh, as somebody brought up in the chat, Hitchcock has a a reputation, uh, shall we say. Uh, those of you who haven't seen movies about Al Alfred Hitchcock's uh, life, including uh, Hitch and or Hitchcock and uh, the Girl, uh, both of those kind of reveal Hitchcock to be a bit of an off-screen. Um, I don't know if we want to say predator, but he certainly had a uh, a type. An asshole might be an appropriate word. Uh, yeah, he and and he shoots Grace Kelly the way Alfred Hitchcock shoots blondes. And uh, so, as much as I I I kind of want to play devil's advocate on this, I I agree. I end up agreeing with Antonio that the film is more feminist than it's not feminist. But let's talk about the ways in which it's not feminist, and that's part of the way in which he is shooting uh, Grace Kelly, uh, the way he's shooting the dancer, uh, the way he's uh, there is a. We'll get into all the voyeuristic tendencies of this film in a in a little bit, but um, I I also wonder to what degree um, are women only interesting to Hitchcock if they are doing something risky or if they are doing something um, sort of outside of the gender specific, specific norms applied to uh, feminist sensibility. Um, is that something that we want to consider as we consider this to be an, an anti, a uh, non-feminist film? Um, it is true that Grace character, Grace Kelly's character, Lisa, um, her feminine intuition ends up leading to a break in the case. Yet we do have Jimmy Stewart's character and Doyle, uh, the the cop, dismissing her ideas out of hand. Um, and uh, there is a lot of sense there, as I said in the the intro to this section of the the podcast that a lot of the males do feel henpecked. I mean, is there any um, is there any validity to the argument that this is not a feministic film? Well, you can go ahead, Ben. I see you were about to jump in there. Okay, I mean, just like, just one small thought. Like I I see I see what you're talking about, um, Jim. Those, those elements are in there. And at first I kind of wanted to say, well, this is sort of stereotypical for like a 50s film. Of course, they're gonna be talking about wives like this, of course, of course, of course. Um, but I think by the end of the film that I, I had sort of like changed my mind because I think it's quite clear that the character Lisa, Grace Kelly's character is in fact the hero of the story. And she's taking a very sort of um, lead role, an aggressive role in pursuing the relationship. I think that's really interesting. I think, yes, of course, she does have some very stereotypically feminine qualities and perhaps the way that she is viewed um, from the director's perspective, but also showing not necessarily that she's doing something stupid, but that she's sort of daring and brave and kind of like willing to go out there on the front lines as it were. Um, and, and kind of like be something that we wouldn't expect. And I think in fact, sort of like blending what we might consider traditional with a little bit non-traditional is, is fantastic because it breaks what we would consider gender norms, especially in the fifties. Right. Um, you know, not necessarily being one thing, but also not being the polar opposite, but in fact, a blend of the things I think is a fantastic way to have written this character. Can we just change to the word impulsive and uh, caring about fellow women? Maybe that's what she was doing. Maybe. There? 
I don't know, like maybe maybe I'm just like really in line with our, our male protagonist and I'm just attracted to crazy too. Like maybe that's really what it is. I don't know. That could I mean, be- but it wasn't even that crazy because what she did did kind of like get to where we needed to go. It, it was very risky and, and she did get attacked and accosted, but um, she was caring about this other person and it was another woman. And I, I kind of get that because that's kind of what us women do for each other, right? We have to have each other's backs. And I think at first she was like, oh, you're just crazy. But then when she believed him, she was like, okay, I have to do this for my fellow woman. And in a way that is super feminist. <laughs> like, I don't even know this woman, but I am willing to take a risk for her because I want her to get justice and I want this guy to pay for what he did. Um, so that's, that's kind of cool. That makes her character really interesting. So in terms of feminist analysis, um, the, the, the most obvious, the, the two most obvious things to lay out here, as far as charging the film with misogyny, it seems to me are, um, first of all, the film is absolutely filmed with a male gaze. You know, there's a, there's numerous points at which the, the, the eye of the film focuses in on the sexuality of the female characters. And there's no point at which, you know, even Jimmy Stewart is portrayed as like, oh, here, look how beefcakey Jimmy Stewart is with his wheelchair and his cast. Like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to rub one out to this? You know, not really, not really where it goes. So, um, so definitely a male gaze film. And then the, the, one of the primary elements of the movie, although it gets a little bit subverted by the way that the the story goes, but one of the primary elements of the movie is that it takes kind of a, um, you know, beauty and the beast dynamic in that, you know, um, Jeff is much less refined than Lisa. Lisa is this sort of pristine, queenly kind of character. And and a lot of, of it is about her attempts to sort of tame him, although ultimately she ends up in kind of an interesting juxtaposition as we see with the conclusion of the movie. Um, but one of the things that I think, I think the movie absolutely does stand for the proposition that the women in the, 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 the prominent female characters in the movie are more competent and savvy and, you know, with it and willing to take the right risks and stuff than the men are. But I think that this actually leads us to, for, to an interesting question as far as the feminist analysis, because there is a trope in Western culture and in, in patriarchal Western culture where the, where the woman is put on a pedestal and that is in fact a form of, of misogyny, right? Where, where the woman is portrayed as so much cleaner than the man and so much smarter and she's the civilizing impulse that, you know, again, that kind of old beauty and the beast kind of trope that we see. Um, and so it does seem to me that rear window sort of falls within this, within this kind of category. And so it, I, you know, while I, you know, just gave a, a feminist analysis of the movie, I, I think it's worth challenging that feminist analysis by saying, to what extent is the fact that Grace Kelly is very a very competent character that she is, you know, the protagonist, etc. Um, to what extent is this actually a misogynistic trope of, you know, the, w- women are capable of a level of perfection. You know, women women are capable of having it all in a way that men are not. You know, at the end of the movie. Jeff is still pretty much Jeff. He's still going to be running around on, you know, tarmac and getting run over by race cars and all this kind of stuff, right? But but Grace Kelly has actually upgraded herself as a character where she's capable of being as adventuresome as Jeff is, while at the same time she still is reading Esquire magazine or whatever at the end. She still has all the stylishness. So she's actually transcended Jeff's capacities as a character by the end of the movie. And so to what extent is this, is this a, a sort of misogynistic, you know, 
uh, putting of a woman on a pedestal, worshiping her with both the camera and the narrative, um, as opposed to a genuine feminist narrative. I think that's worth asking, particularly given what we know about Hitchcock's uh, sexual politics, let's put it that way. Yeah, that's he's he's got some problems as that. I, I mean, if he existed in the Me Too era, there'd definitely be tweets about him. Um, but I, I want to talk about... The screenwriter, though, the screenwriter specifically hung out with Grace Kelly and specifically wrote in a way that would fit her as an actual person. He wanted the dialogue to actually fit her as a person so that it came naturally to her to help her with her performance in this. So the screenwriter, not Alfred, uh, maybe added some of that interestingness um, to her based off of spending time with her. And I almost wonder if some of these things might have been inside jokes between the screenwriter and Grace Kelly about her own character. I don't know if it is, but it's entirely possible because uh, in an interview with him, he specifically said he hung out with her before writing her parts. So it would be more natural, so. I did find myself thinking that a lot of the themes, especially when we were introduced to her character, sounded like she was talking about the experiences of a, an incredibly famous, uh, well-regarded movie actress, right? I mean, it seemed like very, very potentially true to life uh, for her. So I could definitely buy that, right? I mean, like, it seems like she could just be talking about her own life in a sense. I mean, I, I would totally buy that. Um, but I also want to, I, I kind of want to compare this to two different things too. So, I mean, yes, this character, Lisa, her character is sort of put in a high place. Um, obviously, like she has these characteristics of this sort of flawless, a woman who is incredibly amazing in every single way um, and also ends up being the hero of the story. I also think that there are a lot of um, stories about male heroes that are kind of the same. Um, but then again, like, I guess the argument could be made that that's sort of like about the male gaze, right? It's like the male gaze also applies to our impressions of the ideal male. Um, and then, so I'm like, okay, well, how do I really parse this out? And so I start thinking about female directed films, which takes me back to um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and how we sort of saw that as potentially being feminist, where I think my opinion was that the the big difference, especially in the way that we were viewing the characters, was as a result of the director sort of shooting her own perspective on the characters. So we get that female perspective and it's very clearly put on, put on display, um, or at least for that particular director, I think she's really good at communicating her own perspective in her films. Um, and so like, I really think that's that's what it comes down to. I, I, I see a lot of diversity in the female characters in Rear Window. Yes, we have our, our flawless Lisa character, but we also have a range of women that we're seeing all the way down, you know, from, from our pinnacle down to the very bottom of hopelessness. And so I don't think women as a whole are portrayed in any one particular way, even if kind of like our lead actress is shown in sort of like a, a male gaze, stereotypical, uh, heroin um, type of archetype, if you will. Well, yeah, I mean, one thing I wanted to, uh, while well, I was also troll monitoring, unfortunately, um, while we, uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up is, is sort of similar to what you're talking about, Ben, and it was off of Antonio's uh, point. One of our sort of Western conceptions of female uh, characters in movies is that they are the moral center, 
they're the ones that care about ethics. And in this film, it seems a little different that women are far more pragmatic in this movie than they are in sort of typical Western ideas about femininity. Um, you know, I, I had quoted the line about, I don't care about rear window ethics. That is not a line that is typical of sort of a uh, Western stereotypical female. Um, and that's, it, it, I, it's an inter this film's gender politics are really interesting and uh, kind of difficult to pin down. So I'm glad we're- There's a couple of characters we haven't brought up yet. We haven't brought up the women who take off their clothes to go sunbathe on the balcony together, uh, happily doing that. Uh, there was also the artistic older woman who was a little thicker uh, who was making these sculptures uh, that were very weird and interesting and then scolding the scary guy about how he was taking care of his plants or whatever. But I mean, she was an interesting character. She didn't necessarily fit into this mold of the most beautiful woman, uh, although she did dress in a way that was definitely revealing, right? She had little strappy like bathing suit top thing because it's hot out. Uh, and she was fine with her body, even though she was thicker and older. Uh, so there is some body positivity going on with these women. And it wasn't even like part of the story necessarily. It was just that women were kind of free in this neighborhood. Uh, you see free women just being who they want to be. They're expressing themselves through dance, through sculpture, through just relaxing and spending time with each other. Uh, it, and even a woman telling a guy off who's treating her wrong and telling him to get the hell out is very empowering stuff. So it's not a theme you would normally see from a 50s film. Uh, it, and yes, there are the stereotypical pretty girls, sure, but there were definitely some interesting characters that didn't necessarily fit that mold that were characters in and of themselves. Uh, so, yeah. Let's... Uh... Yeah, let's sort of transition, um, unless Antonio or Ben wants to sort of comment on that, I want to transition to something that we talked about uh, earlier, and that is voyeurism. We've we've talked a lot about this, but I don't think we've really sort of dug deep into how this film is uh, scopophilic. <laughs> That's the word I learned today. Um, scopophilia is to derive sexual pleasure from looking, and is Rear Window a scopophilic film? Um, and, uh, you know, we see this in The Dancer, who's expressly sexual, both Doyle and Jeff kind of look at her in a uh, how about it kind of way. Um, and and critics window as a whole is a film about watching movies. How about how Jeff is in the audience's position. He's watching the outcome, he's reacting to the outcome, but he's mostly unable to affect the outcome. Uh, to what degree do you think, what, what is Hitchcock trying to say about voyeurism? And what is Hitchcock, maybe is this a meta narrative about watching movies? Like, what do you think about, we've explored this a little bit, but I really wanna dig down deep into the idea of voyeurism as it relates to Rear Window. Well, well think about it, the windows are frames. And that's what a movie is. It's little mini movies. It's a frame within a frame within a frame. <laughs> and it starts out with you seeing his frame and then he looks out his frame and then there are other frames and it's it's meta as fuck, of course, yeah. I, I know Antonio probably wants to add to that, but that's 
it's a billion frames in. Yeah, I do think it's, I mean, it, I think it's fairly obviously a movie about watching movies just from the way that the, that the scenes are set up, you know, the, the windows, the way that the windows are shaped effectively turns them into cameras. And, and of course, this is, uh, this would be much more strongly cued in the 1950s because camera technique was much more static back in those days as well. And so we would be expecting to, you know, look into, especially on television, you know, look into these kind of boxy pictures of a room and see people interacting inside kind of like it's a terrarium or what have you. Um, but, uh, but equally importantly though, is I think that this, it is a movie about watching movies but I think it's a movie that that is not necessarily as as the way in the way Jim put it, where it's more in the sense of we're passively sitting back and experiencing narratives. But rather, I think Hitchcock is actually trying to make a, the point that that we actively tamper with the narratives that are presented to us, um, rather than being merely passive witnesses. With that, that we we see what is going on in front of us. And it's necessarily always an incomplete story. You know, we're, we're seeing at best a highlight reel or a, you know, on next week's episode or what have you, you know. And, and, but, and, and we extrapolate from that. We build this whole rest of the story in our heads from the five, five or six frames of action that we see. And, and so we go, oh, well, you know, he came in here and then he closed the blinds and then he strangled her while the blinds were closed, right? Um, and, and we, we, decide what the narrative is and then that and then and then that causes us causes sort of an interference pattern with the narrative where everything we see after that is colored by what we've already assumed about the narrative and so our, our position as a viewer is actually one that directly interacts with the narrative in front of us and that and that shapes the way that that narrative plays out and of course as we see with the jimmy stewart you know character if if not for his watching that particular movie it would have ended as you know a salesman moves out kind of mysteriously in the middle of the night and that's it whereas in the movie that we actually end up seeing is a murder mystery so um so i think that that uh yes it is about movies but it's about how powerfully our voyeuristic perspective shapes the narrative that we see unfolding for us rather than simply pointing out that we're passive actors. I think it actually underlines the extent to which we are active uh, complicators of the narrative. I I see what you're saying, Antonio, and I, I like a lot of your points, but for me, I mean, the re look, this was my film. This was a film that I put on the list. This was a film that I wanted to discuss um, as a horror movie uh, because the scene where Grace Kelly is in the room and Jimmy Stewart is uh, on, you know, in his his room, and he has to watch what is going on and is absolutely powerless to affect the outcome. That is the scene of true horror for me. And in fact, uh, you know, in my closing comments, what I'll get into is how that is how I feel about the big issues of life is that there's, there are things that I'm absolutely powerless to, to affect. And this distance between the events that are taking place and the what the witnessing of those events is, is a mile for Jimmy Stewart and a mile and that, that distance, it renders one helpless. And so 
as much as I understand your idea that we are participating in the narratives, we're almost creating those narratives in our watching of them, I, I do have to disagree because when I watch a movie, I can't tell the woman not to go down the stairs because the music is getting creepy. Um, I can't, you know, I can't affect the outcome. So I, I, I guess I, I'm quibbling with your, I, as much as I sort of see where you're coming from and kind of like what you're saying, the things that are most horrific about this movie are the, the elements that are completely the opposite of the point you just made. Well, and, and there we go back to the what, what we were talking about earlier with, you know, trading security for comfort and what have you. Um, what I would say is that that um, I don't think that it is it is contradictory to say that we participate in the narrative inherently, but not necessarily have control over the narrative. There's a difference between participating in the narrative and controlling it. And so what I would say is that what we're what, what we observe in, in Rear Window is the extent to which we are necessarily participants, even in what is a passive narrative. Right. Um, however, I think that, as you point out, you know, there is definitely an element uh, where wherein the movie underlines that that these narratives are narratives that we do participate in, but that we ultimately cannot control. And it, and it is that lack of control over the narrative, regardless of our attempt to participate in it, that is the horrific element of the movie, such as it is. You know, I, I agree with originally what you were talking about there about um, kind of like that that narrative and our participation in it. Um, and I know on this podcast a lot, we talk about how horror films are really good in, in terms of being mirrors into ourselves and into culture. And so I, I wholeheartedly agree, especially if we were talking about what I can, would consider a horror film this time. Um, the argument that I would make is that, of course, like we are, in fact, sort of active in the, the, the consumption of the art because art, of course, takes on a life of its own. And I think... Um, the the interview with um, uh, Willem Dafoe uh, and Kermode about Antichrist is sort of a really good example of that because of course one would argue that this isn't a misogynistic film whereas another one would you know one being an actor in the film but another being a consumer of the the final product and understanding what was communicated through the screen. Um, for, those, for those people who may not uh, know about that interview, Ben, can you recount it once again so that uh, those people who might be new to the podcast might be able to to know what you're talking about. Oh, I sure. know what you're talking about, but let's tell them. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, they're, they're really, honestly, like the part that I can tell really isn't much more beyond that. Like that's, I feel like the whole point. So like he was, he was interviewing Willem Dafoe about this movie. And of course, like there, there's a lot of uh, elements and themes that can be interpreted as misogynistic, especially because of just, I, I don't know, just go, go watch our podcast. You'll kind of see, because we, we dive in depth into a lot of the gory details of that movie and how it portrays women in particular in a really sort of, brutal and not, not nice light. Um, and that part is hundred uh, percent fair. Like it's true. And that's really one strong interpretation of the different elements in that movie, but go, go back to our YouTube homepage, look up the antichrist podcast and, and watch our discussion of that. Cause it's really good. But in the interview, essentially Willem Dafoe wanted to kind of like make the argument, no, this isn't a misogynistic film. I was in it um, because of this reason and that reason and Kermode wholeheartedly disagreed and said, no, it is a, a misogynistic film. I understand because while you may have, uh, yeah, you may have made the film. I watched it. I watched what was on the screen. I saw what was portrayed. Um, I am interpreting the events. Um, and that sort of like gives him kind of like a one-upsmanship about, you know, over an actor or even somebody that was in the movie who may not have created exactly what they were intending to create. Um, 
in any case, so yes, this is all to say the point being made is that as viewers, we do take a, a very obviously active part in the consumption and interpretation of art. Um, and in horror in particular, I think that's absolutely true because the fears that are evoked by horror as an art form are entirely subjective. You know, I mean, if you're watching a horror film, one person's going to be scared by it, another person's not going to be scared. Or both people could be scared, but for completely different reasons. Maybe it resonates with them in a totally different wavelength, but both are entirely valid. And I would say that in, in this particular case in Rear Window, if I were arguing this would be a horror film, and I really wish it had been because there is a particular part toward the end where this sort of turns not necessarily from like a horror mystery, but in kind of like, it turns kind of like into a home invasion film, right? Where it's like, spoiler, spoiler, spoilers. Um, the guy that we've been watching the entire time in one of these screens out the rear window comes into Jimmy's apartment and comes to attack him. So he literally has to fight him off. And God, I really would love if this would have been the actual theme that I could pull from the movie because there's a there's a total Nietzsche and kind of like as you stare into the void, the, stare, the void stares back into you. You know, this might be an analogy for how fear kind of is evoked from within as we're watching this art form on the external. We believe it's outside, but really it's all in here. Um, and so I wouldn't say the most horrific thing about this film is the helplessness, but about how it's really kind of like about us as the viewer and how all of the horror and all of the fear is self-generated. Um, unfortunately, I can't really make that point because I don't think that's actually what the film is trying to say. But but if that were, I would be completely agreeing with Antonio right now. <laughs> so the way that I see the film is our memories are edited uh, in our own minds. We edit them ourselves. And you know, a story that we might've told about something that happened to us in seventh grade now that we're in our 30s, the story's adjusted a little bit. You know, that's just kind of how we do our memories. Um, and when we watch movies, that's an edited version of a story. Uh, there's a lot of complaints about reality TV not being real because people are editing together real footage to make it look like someone's angry at someone when they're not, or someone's attracted to someone when they're not, or someone's being sinister when they're not based off of music, based off of how the shot is taken. I mean, it could just be someone smelling someone else's fart and going, ugh, but they're putting it out there like, I hate this person, I want them dead. Um, but that's exactly what's happening in this film. And the way that it's being edited is through the blinds being shut or open. That's a form of editing that they use. But on top of that, you have a musician. And this musician is playing the same tune over and over again, yes, and trying to perfect that, uh, which we talk about perfection a lot in this film. It is a very big theme in this film, but he's trying to get that perfect uh, beat to the music. And when Grace Kelly breaks into the apartment, that's when he's together with this whole group with this whole band of people. And there's a lot more depth and the music is actually becoming more in depth along with the story getting more in depth. It's a form of editing and Alfred Hitchcock is putting it out there in completion. He's saying, I'm editing it to make you feel this way. Ha ha ha. And it's, he is being a, a troll. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's legitimately being a troll. He's messing with your mind and he loves it. Um, and he's being overt in it in that place where he makes his little he always makes an appearance in his films but the place where he makes his appearance is in the musician's apartment why he's letting you know that's where he's editing the most that's where he's going to get you right here um and really mess with your mind and one of the most interesting things that happened in one of the oscars it was for uh was it 12 years a slave uh when 
Lupita got her Oscar. And usually when an actress gets an Oscar, she's, you know, thanking people in her life that she loves and cares about, maybe the director. She thanked the editor of the film for her Oscar, which is very fascinating, but it's very real. And it's a very important point to be made. The editor is the one that puts together the story in a way that helps your character come to completion. Editing is one of the most important parts of storytelling, I think. And it is so well done here in sound. You, it, you have this in real life sound that the, the noises of the neighborhood fit perfectly with what's going on. The music, it's supposed to be part of the ambiance, but it's actually part of the movie's psychological messing with you. It's the blinds are part of the editing, but also the editing is part of the editing. It's crazy uh, mindfuck inception and it's so ahead of its time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't yeah, know where I'm going with this, but it's, no, I think that's, that's what a, makes it true horror. It's fucking with you. That's <laughs> a really, I, I think you're pointing in us to some of the really important points about how well this film is made. Um, it's uh, the, it, the music works both diegetically and non-diegetically. So diegetic music is music that could be seen as part of the regular world. It's music that um, happens, is logical to happen within the, the area. And so we see the musician uh, composing his music and blah, 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 but it also works non-diegetically um, as though it's score uh, underscoring the emotional relevance of the events that we see happening. I hope I'm making sense. Ben, you're you're sort of looking up at the the sky as though I'm not necessarily making sense. Uh, am no, I? I'm just I'm getting divine inspiration from God right now. Okay, good. Um, good. Yeah. Well, no, no, I, so it's not the difference between diegetic and non-diegetic that's causing you to look up at the sky. It's just the Lord. All right. Yeah, I, know. I, I do want to say though, I do, I do want to say though that I, I think that's fascinating and I love this technique and it's actually, I just recently over the past week, obviously because it just released went to see Midsummer. And so the one thing that I will bring up here and I, I won't introduce any spoilers, go see the movie. But one of the coolest things about it, I think, or at least one of the most interesting things from an editing perspective is how in rear window, we see a lot of the music for the scenes coming from a dude who's literally apartment over composing music on his piano. And they use the exact same thing in Midsummer, where there's people out playing instruments that are kind of like underscoring the feeling of the scene, but they're literally there playing their instruments. And it's kind of, it blurs the lines between what you think is sort of like movie editing, but like what's actually in the scene. So it's the sort of like fantasy versus reality thing. And it just like, it blends so well. And I know I've seen scenes in movies before where they use kind of like music on the radio a little bit the same way, but it's not really the same. I don't know. So I'm, one thing that it's it really reminded me of uh, of Midsummer when I saw this in Rear Window or vice versa, I guess, because maybe Hitchcock kind of like came up with that thing. Um, and I just thought it was really cool. I don't know. It's it's really cool. Maybe they got in. Maybe Ari it's asked awesome. about inspiration. It really, yeah. it makes you feel very uncomfortable. You're like what the fuck is happening? That's that's your automatic reaction. And I know that that's what Hitchcock knew would occur. You're like, wait, is this a score? Wait, this is actually happening. Wait, what is reality? Oh shit. And it, it, it just makes your brain 
get a little bit uncomfortable. And I've actually seen some people, and we are going to get into this next week. We will talk about Midsummer, but I did see some people try to write that Midsummer is also not a horror film. So we can go back into this discussion because it will happen again next week. <laughs> um, and Midsummer's a horror film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, agree. I think you and I will agree on that as well. But it has to do with those same elements, right? Like there's forms of editing and there's forms of sound design and there's forms of mind fucking. Um, I, maybe my definition of horror is that there's someone trying to fuck with you that's puppeteering the thing that's in front of your eyes. I don't know. Uh, I can't I can't pinpoint it. Just like I can't pinpoint what philosophy is. Whenever people are like, what's philosophy? And I'm like, ah, I have a million answers. <laughs> There's so many things to say. It's it can I write you a book? I don't know. Um yes, you hard. can always write me a book. I always have to read it. <laughs> um let's uh yeah um, let's run through go go ahead Antonio yeah I was gonna say to come to come back to what you were saying Joe about the diegetic and non-diegetic nature of the, of the of the score you know in the musician's apartment um I think that once again highlights the that that central theme of the inevitability of our entanglement with the narrative right the narrative is bleeding over even into other narratives that we're watching uh, such that it's you know the, the 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 music from one narrative is now the score for the other narrative that we're watching you know um, it's the, our our participation in it and and the narrative's participation with one another through us the viewer as the medium is kind of inevitable and and honestly to I don't know if it I don't know if I want to say push back but to maybe to add to what you were saying about the concept of you know what is the the fundamental nature of the horror in this movie such as it is I think rather than saying for for me at least rather than saying that it's the helplessness of watching something unfold in front of you what I would say the core element of the horror is is the notion of the narrative bleeding over the fourth wall breaking right the idea that that this narrative that you've been participating in and have not been able to control because that's not the nature of the narrative now is part of your narrative and you can't still can't control it and now it's coming to get you you know and and so the, as as shara pointed out you know the guy literally comes from off screen he literally exits stage left and then all of a sudden he comes in the door you know what I mean? He come, he goes off the screen stage left, and then all of a sudden he's in the door and he's trying to choke us. And and that I think is the horror is that is that we we entangle ourselves with the narrative, but we always assume that we can just pull back from the window, we can just wheel back from the window, turn off the lights, and now we're safe. Now now we're done with our participation in the narrative. And the movie I think tells us pretty profoundly you can't necessarily bank on that. So you agree it's horror? <laughs> maybe maybe uh, bring me around. Yes, after two hours. Um, all right, let's just run through a couple other things about the, uh, the cinematography. Um, I slow moving camera shots of across five apartments. It's like five sh uh, silent short films. We kind of talked about that. Um, I like the the POV shots at the end. The use of shadows in Jeff's room, the flames in Thorwald's dark apartment as he smokes. Like these are great Hitchcock tricks. These are how you know you're watching a Hitchcock film. 
And uh, that, well, we'll get in, we talked enough about the Breen code. So that was on my list, but I'm not going to talk about that because we spent like a half as hour. As far on as that. like a visual language of the movie, um, one thing that I think we definitely should at least take 30 seconds to mention is how at the very beginning of the movie, everything we need to know about Jeff's character is revealed to us in 30 seconds of Jeff's work product. Um, you know, how, how the movie just pans by a series of pictures showing the stuff that he's done. And so we, so we immediately know without a single word being spoken, without any direct cue, you know, just as we're being introduced to the environment, we know what he does for a living. We know what kind of stuff he does within that profession. And we know a great deal about his personality and his priorities in life, um, simply based on what the, what the film shows us that he has produced. Um, and then we pan up to the man, and by the time we see the man, we already know him. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, one of the most brilliant openings in movies, one of the most brilliant expositions in in cinema. You know, it, it'd be hard to find any thirty second uh, piece of a movie that gives you as much information about the narrative or the character with as little extra work put into it. The only the only argument that I would have with you is last picture show. You know exactly what that town is based upon the first fifteen seconds of that movie. You know everything you need to know about that movie. I love last picture show for exposition, and I love rear window for exposition. So uh, let's sort of roll this into our final thoughts. Um, Antonio, do you want to go first? Tell us what you uh, go ahead and give a full summation of the film, and uh, I'll close this out and tease next week which you might not know what we're doing next week yeah so um thoughts on the movie so I, this is one of my favorite movies it's always been one of my favorite movies since i was a kid i saw this when i was probably you know 12 or something for the first time and it's been one of my favorite movies since then um i've always appreciated uh the the way that the movie builds tension i've always appreciated the way the movie kind of keeps you guessing um and, and as I've gotten older, one of the things that I've appreciated the most about the movie is, is the frank nature of the existential questions that the movie addresses. You know, the, the, movie, the movie is very frank about its, about its questions it asks about privacy and voyeurism. Uh, and the movie is also very frank about um, how, as we were discussing earlier, it, it, it uh, plays into that dynamic between security and comfort. You know, these are very human characters that have realistic uh, hopes and dreams and who change and adapt and develop in realistic ways. Um, and, and the way that they deal with their anxieties and, and overcome their insecurities, I think is one of the, one of the nicest things about the movie. You know, the, the movie shows the Grace Kelly character evolving uh, very profoundly from, you know, someone who might be considered even a little bit of a dilettante at the beginning to a very courageous and strong and fleshed out character by the end. And similarly, um, the, the hyper-masculine Jeff character has learned to, to accept to some degree his incapacities and to, to let others take better care of him than he has at the beginning of the movie as well. So all that to say, you know, one of my favorite movies, like I said earlier, probably one of my 10 favorites ever. Um, it's a nine out of 10 for me. It's a almost, almost a perfect movie. There's almost nothing that, uh, that I could object to in the way that it, it plays out. It's very economical, profoundly well acted. Um, 
just a just a very efficient product and a very a very beautiful movie that's not like anything that you'll have seen that was done before Ed. i'll go next uh back in the early times of the internet really creating memes there was this joke fear jump scare thing we sent to our friends and family and recorded them looking at to laugh at them it would be some kind of an image and we would tell them to focus on something and they'd really stare intently at their computer screen until a monster would pop out at you and scare the crap out of you uh they didn't have anything elaborate like that back in the 50s but what they did have was uh hitchcock and the way that he really tried to add that what the fuck moment for you was he started out his film with some nice happy jazz music hooray everything's great Everything will be fine. Nothing is horrible. Look at the pretty blonde. Everything's great. And then, uh, okay, never mind. Everything's really bad. Oh God, <laughs> just escape, run away. Um, and and that was a really clever way of of creating that kind of uh fear, right? You make someone feel like everything's gonna be fine, and then boom, uh, you show them it's not. And um, and that's how you really create a good horror. And I think it, it makes it such a, an important element to getting to where we are now in our horror jokes and pranks we'll even play on our friends and family um, is making them feel comfortable until boom, we're not comfortable. And uh, I think that the sound, the score, the editing, the screenwriting, all are just absolutely imperative to stuff we see today. And even people have tried to remake this film, they can't, no, <laughs> stop trying, don't do it. <laughs> it's, it's, it is what it is for its time. And, and you know, now, now I can see Ben is, is trying to figure out how he could try to make Rear Window today <laughs> and make it work. But uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that too many people have tried to remake and they cannot do it. it it's, it's dangerous to even attempt. Um, but it's it's up there. It's 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 one of the films, right? This is not just in horror, but in just films. This is one of the films, so it, it has to be highly rated. You have to go with at least an eight point five, but I have to go to nine, just because it's for me. I, I laugh so much whenever I see certain parts of it. For me, it's a comedy and a horror and a drama and a mystery. It's everything. It's so well written, and the film language is perfect. So, yeah, I love it. Sorry. <laughs> I'll let you go. Uh, is it Ben that's going to go next and then Jim? Yeah, I, I want to hear Ben because I think he's going to be the uh, lowest on the movie. I could be mistaken, but... Uh, it's I, a two. I, that's it. That's my all review. Yeah. Oh, this no, no, no. For, uh, <laughs> what was it? Raw or whatever movie you were upset that I rated low. I forget um, what it was. I guess yeah. I'm over it. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I want to say, though, about the... Um, about like redoing this movie, actually, it, it was kind of interesting because I know Jim, you and I have had discussions about uh, what you would do to um, Cloverfield. I think in one of our, our shortcuts, did we release that one already? Yeah, that's to be released. That is coming this Friday. Oh, okay, okay. Time. So there's uh, an interesting argument. I improve an ongoing horror franchise. Yeah, there's an interesting argument that Jim makes in that movie. And I think the technique here where we see um, kind of like multiple stories being shown through window frames right as a medium as opposed to maybe like computer screens like other types of things you could use um it kind of ties into that anyway so a little bit of a teaser uh, watch our shortcuts analysis um the next one that comes out it's going to be really good 
anyway, okay, so on to this film. Um, yeah, like it, it, I was surprised whenever I looked up the, the, the critical reviews of this movie. I wanted to kind of inform myself about what other people thought of it and about why it was good. Um, you know, not necessarily because I couldn't form my own opinion, but when something is so highly rated like this for, for, for technical reasons and for reasons that are maybe more obvious to someone who is really incredibly well-versed in film and filmmaking, um, I think it behooves a person to really do their research, right? And really think about what is so good about a movie like this and why Hitchcock in general is regarded the way that he is. And so I was, I was quite shocked. Like if you can, you can go on uh, Rotten Tomatoes yourself and like, obviously the critical, the, the critics reviews, I think are a hundred percent. And even just like the audience reviews of which there are many are like 95% recommended. Um, probably one of the most highly rated movies that I've ever seen on Rotten Tomatoes, especially, but obviously it's on a lot of lists too, where, you know, it's recommended as like a must watch if you're, if you're into film in any, any sort of like serious uh, way. But yeah, I think I, I definitely agree with that for the reasons that we've discussed. It's really technically interesting. I absolutely love visual storytelling, as we've already talked about. Um, and I think there are a lot of really cool elements used in terms of like light and shadow, like Jim mentioned, and just like breaking that fourth wall about, you know, you're seeing all of this happening in front of you, but then it sort of like comes into your safe space. Um, the characters are really interesting and really well written and really well acted. Like really, I mean, there's nothing that I can pick out that I would choose to complain about honestly i mean especially for a film made in the 50s i think it's it's uh, a masterwork it's it's quite good um however i think in in this particular podcast i i want to try and rate things as sort of um genre specific and i i guess that's not really fair but like whenever i think about a five like i've only given one five in my entire life and it was because of the emotional evocation that that movie was able to produce in me it was like a piece of art that i found personally um incredibly powerful now a step down from that is going to be the 4.5s where the the work has some kind of like artistic value that really gets it up to that point but maybe it doesn't have the same oomph and then four is going to be everything that i find um, really close to that, um, and, and more recently, I guess, like I would probably revise some of my historical scores, but more recently, I want to reserve fours for movies that are like technically impressive, uh, really, really fantastic, really well done, no big complaints, but maybe just didn't get to the level where I view them as like a, a, a piece of art that is evocative to me and interesting on some kind of like a deeper level. So because of that, I think I'm going to have to give this movie a four. Uh, it perhaps will be the, the lowest rating on this particular episode, but I do still think that that's, that's high praise for this. I think this is a fantastic and really, really interesting movie. Um, but I, I don't think it's, I still don't think it's a horror per se. Um, and I also don't think that it stands out to me as a, a, a work of art. Like it is fantastic. Um, I think it's something that directors should study and try to like, emulate and learn from and reuse those techniques and really think about what Hitchcock does well and all the fantastic things that he uses in terms of, you know, the, the editing and the writing in the film, as well as just the way things are shot, um, the, the character acting. I mean, it's, it's all amazing. And I think it's absolutely something that can be used for inspiration and should be drawn from, but I don't think it gets up to the level of, of art for me um, in terms of film. So four out of five, definitely recommend go see it. Yeah, I mean, I I can certainly respect a a four rating for this film. In fact, that's kind of where I was going to fall, or I, I was sort of oscillating between a four point five and a four. Um, but I, I mean, 
as the level i think clearly this film is art like you wouldn't you wouldn't call this film not art, right? I mean, if you were if you were running the art not art Twitter account, you would call this art. I think. Uh, I mean, I would even call Martyrs art, even though I rated it a one. Like, it's still art, even though it's bad. Um, you, okay, so if you're using that definition, uh, I don't know. Like, maybe maybe I have a, a higher bar. I don't know if I would call Martyrs art, or maybe it's just like an attempt at art. I don't know. Let's say that it's an attempt. It's a good attempt. Um, Hitchcock's work is definitely worlds above martyrs. Like, obviously, it doesn't even have to be said. Um, I don't know. There's just it. There's 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 like a special something. So I think when we talk about Midsummer, I think it's going to get into that realm. Um, I think if we were to talk about uh, Pegasusa, like at any point in the future, it would probably get to that realm or the witch or Antichrist or like uh, some of the other picks that I've had. Obviously, Seven Seal. But I don't know. There, there's a space that it's hard to describe the jump that it takes to get there. Um, and while there are no complaints for this particular film, I don't know if it just like, it doesn't go into like the realm of the supernatural, maybe, I don't know. I'm not sure what a good word for it is, but there has to be like that question mark, that extra little something that's hard to define. That's, that's an interesting metric. And I'm glad that you, uh, outlined your metric for us as we're, we're understanding your ratings. Okay. So for me, this, uh, as I said, this is sort of oscillating between a four and a 4.5. I settled on a 4.5 partially because I don't want to be the lowest like Ben. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, everything my co-host said about this film's filmmaking, uh, about the technical craft that went into this film, I think are really important aspects. Um, I also like the acting. Jimmy Stewart is able to add charm to a character who's kind of an asshole. Um, and I think that Grace Kelly is just so Grace Kelly-ish. Um, and there's no other word to, she's a true princess. Um, and that's a fact, look it up. But I, the reason why I chose this film for the podcast and the reason why I think it's a horror film is because it does do for me a lot of what Ben's fives do for Ben. And that is relate something personally uh, in the filmmaking uh, to, to him. And, and it does to me. And that is essentially the way I feel about all of the big world issues, that I am observing them, I am uh, looking through at them through my window, and yet I am unable to affect them. So things like climate change and uh, Trump and all of the nasty things that he is doing to our country and the world. Um, and yet I feel so powerless and helpless to, uh, to affect change. And it's this, the scene that makes this a horror film for me is the scene where Grace Kelly is in the, the, the apartment. We see Raymond Burr's character approaching and we see cutaways to Jimmy Stewart and his complete powerlessness and helplessness to, uh, affect change and to, to save the woman who he will eventually, well, at, at that point, I think throughout the movie, he actually loves her and he doesn't really know it. Uh, but that sort of bygones. Um, my, that is, that image sticks with me. That is the image that, uh, to steal Noah's phrase, puts a stone in my shoe. And that image 
is something that only film can communicate. Only film can visually render the emotion that one would feel when one is looking at all of these big world issues to which one feels so powerless to affect change in. And that's exactly how I feel when I sort of read the news and get scared. Um, and uh, so that's that's the reason why I chose it. That's the reason why I think it's a horror film. I give it a 4.5 out of 5 um, for all its technical merits. And then the 0.5 is how it sort of personally relates to, uh, to how I feel about sort of big world shit. Um, so... That is our thoughts on Rear Window. We hope you've enjoyed the Deadly Analysis podcast. If you uh, liked what you saw, please give us a like, uh, share us, um, hit the bell, because you actually won't know that we're producing a new vi video until the bell tells you we are. Um, hit all of the things. Uh, share. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, uh, and uh, stay tuned next week where we discuss the new release, uh, Midsummer, directed by Ari Oster. Uh, Noah will return. He will resume hosting duties, and he will uh, uh, surely have a lot of great things to say about Midsummer. So until then, thank you again for watching. Have a great night.